You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thank you for today's worship and for gathering us now. We thank you for the promise of your presence, and we ask for your wisdom as we think and discuss together. May you be praised in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If we have a theme verse for these weeks together on soulcraft, which we have defined as the art of discerning, applying, and enjoying the wisdom of God in every aspect of life, it would be Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, depth of insight, so that you would discern what is best and be filled with the fruit of righteousness until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful prayer that Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, and it certainly is a wonderful prayer for us to understand in relationship to our friendships, our own self-identity, our marriages, uh, our grandparenting, uh, every aspect of our relational life. So by way of introduction, just three dashes there. Relationships are the proving ground of the gospel. I continue to think that probably the most powerful witness that we engage in is how we relate. How we relate to God, how we relate to one another. And we discuss that. Uh, Self-worth is not a human achievement but a divine endowment. It's not what we achieve that is the measure of us. It is what we have received uh, from God. A very different orientation to self-worth, having been made in God's image and redeemed by his grace, gives us a very different kind of identity uh, than what is often sought by others. And thirdly, God designed us in such a way that the measure of our communion with him is reflected in the depth of our relationships with others. So there's a tie-in here between communion with God and community among people. I think both Christians and non-Christians. We used three texts last time talking about friendship, uh, where Jesus says uh, in John 15 in that upper room discourse that you're no longer servants but friends because I've told you what we're about, and you're my friends if you obey what I have commanded. Now, only really Christ uh, stands in the position of saying that in terms of establishing the relationship with himself. But that whole passage in John 15 is instructive, not only for our communion with God, but for our community together. And we looked briefly at Ruth and also the David and Jonathan um, statement where Jonathan says to David, let the Lord be between you and me, between my generation and your generation now and forever. And the cost that that was for Jonathan to give that kind of declaration. But today what I'd like us to reflect on is the two loves. Very briefly, before we sort of look at notes, let me explain what I'm aiming for here. There are two loves. Romantic love and redemptive love. What's the relationship between these two loves? 
I'm talking here, of course, of uh, relationships between men and women, between uh, husbands and wives. Uh, and oftentimes the felt, by some anyways, the competition between these two loves, romantic love and redemptive love, love for a spouse and love for God, and how does that relate and work? The greater love, of course, is God's love for us. The lesser love is our love for one another. Some people may even kind of react in any sense. How can you call marital love or this romantic love as a lesser love? But these loves are defined in relationship to one another. Uh, You would not have the lesser love apart from the greater love. And God persistently in Scripture uses the lesser love to illustrate the greater love, his love for us. And so to the Israelites, he is constantly comparing their relationship with him to the marriage relationship. And through the prophet Jeremiah, he describes himself as being the jilted lover, that the people of God have thrown him aside, uh, prostituting themselves. So he uses this uh, relationship, this analogy between loves, in order to explain uh, how much he loves them and really how deeply offended he is that they have rejected his love. The prophets all do this. Ezekiel does it. Isaiah does it. It's a running kind of commentary on describing his relationship. So the paragraph below, the greater love, the last paragraph, it kind of defines it. These two loves, marital love and divine love, romantic love and redemptive love, are meant to support and illuminate one another, each other. The lesser love, the love between husband and wife, is meant to help us grasp more completely the personal intimacy and earnestness of God's love for us. The greater love, God's sacrificial saving love, is meant to be the source and the strength and the standard for human love. The power and intensity of the oneness experienced between a man and woman points to the greater mystery of our oneness with God in Christ. Two quick illustrations that really could deserve a lot more time and thought, but in Elizabeth Elliot's book, The Shadow of the Almighty, describing kind of the life of Jim Elliot. Now, remember those five missionaries that were killed by Aka Indians? This this is somewhat of a subcultural kind of question, I realize, but how many are familiar with the Elliots, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Shadow of the Almighty? Well, this book is part of the um, oh, hagiography of the evangelical world um, and how she describes uh, Jim Elliot's. He was famous for, um, uh, for kind of an heroic martyrdom kind of Christianity. Well, what I found fascinating in the book is just a small aspect of the book, but Jim Elliot saw his love for Elizabeth as competition against his love for God. 
And he struggled mightily over the kind of conflict of two loves. And he felt that this, this love for her was a temptation, uh, thwarting his uh, complete devotion and commitment to God and Christ and to the mission of the church. And he struggled. And he prayed that the Lord would give him a sign that this love for Elizabeth was in God's will for him. And uh, for five years, in deep anguish, they went back and forth on this. Very little is said from Elizabeth's perspective in the book. It's all really Jim Elliot's perspective, written by Elizabeth. But he couldn't see how these two loves related. Now, I contrast it in my mind with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letters from cell number 92, his love letters, because he was engaged to Maria van Wendemeyer, and he was imprisoned. And the letters that go between them are of a completely different understanding of the relationship of these two loves. Because he sees Maria's love for him and his love for Maria as a wonderful gift. That even in the midst of all of this war and Maria's lost father and two brothers and an uncle, all German soldiers killed in action. I mean, this is, these are Germans we're talking about here. And, uh, and yet, and in love with Dietrich who's in prison. And it's just a, such a powerful description in these letters of a God-shaped, God-infused, God-grace world that they live in, in the midst of this, of great grief and prison, and just celebrating the fact that uh, at 6 o'clock each night, he in prison, she far, far away, could pray together and bring their lives, center their lives before God. These are two different, really different Christian subcultural approaches to understanding the relationship of these two loves. Jim Elliot, after five years of tremendous angst expressed in countless letters, receiving no sign, yet quickly elopes with Elizabeth and they marry. And uh, he kind of writes it off as, well, we struggled with this for five years. Let's do it. In the end, receiving no more spiritual confirmation of making this. But, uh, and I just think of the angst that he received and the peace that Dietrich and Maria experienced. I certainly think Dietrich and Maria have it right that these two loves are not in competition. They're in union. And you really can have that romantic love without God's redemptive love. And that one of the issues in our life is that when we expect the spouse to be our savior, and that's impossible. It's just impossible. We need a savior. That idea of needing a savior in relationships uh, came home to me powerfully in the last year of my mother's life. 
and the last year of my middle son's uh, San Diego State college life. Um, of our three children, the one that probably caused us the most um, consternation and the greatest challenge was Andrew, our middle son. Uh, poor guy, dyslexic, raised in a family of books and uh, you know reading and all of that. He was very material, very tangible, very hands-on. Uh, he lifeguarded for 10 years. That gives you some idea. Loves the ocean. So it's his last year of San Diego State, insistent on living at home to save us money, didn't want us to spend a lot on college and university, just wanted to get through it and get into uh, lifeguarding or criminal justice, which is what his major was. And, you know, whenever I would say to Andrew, well, let's pray or and he, you know, he left his Bible wrapped in cellophane for a couple of years, driving this guy almost nuts. Um, but always respectful and loving. And uh, his problems, you know, his issues weren't, you know, money, sex, and and drugs. Uh, it was just a, a kind of casualness, a, you know, a distance and aloofness on this. Uh, but he'd show up at church, listen to his father preach, and then he'd go over to my grand, to my mother's, his grandmother. All his idea, she was too weak to get to church, and he would go and have breakfast with her. And you know, he wouldn't really listen to my prayers. He'd kind of roll his eyes when I'd say, "Let's pray." But he would listen to my mother's prayers, his grandmother's prayers, and she would have these long prayers. And and, uh, and then on Monday, often she would say, you do know that Andrew really loves you guys and has a lot of respect for you. And uh, and it just it was a beautiful thing, Andrew and mom relating. And. Uh, Mom was really going downhill, and we didn't expect her to last too much longer. And uh, and Andrew was leaving for Ghana. His idea um, to serve for three months in a ministry that we were involved in, again, all his idea, um, even with his fussy dad. Um, and uh, he he left a note and uh, at the end, and he said, you know, I... You really are, how did he word it, Virginia, about our soul? Yeah, I don't remember the exact wording. But the he left a note as he was boarding the plane, alluding to the fact that, that, yeah. He said, I know, Mom, you're going to be crying, but you really um, had to. And he thanked, he thanked you for always being on his back. And because, I mean, Andrew just needed a lot to get through, too. Um, and as he parted. I just realized that my son needed someone beyond a father. He needed a savior. And I could be a dad to him up to a certain degree, but I couldn't save him. And it was just the same impression I was having with my mother. Uh, I could walk with her, but only so far. And she needed a savior in her dying days very powerful Christian um, and had a tremendous impact on all of us. Uh, you just, we can't save one another. 
can pray for one another, we can encourage one another, we can walk with one another, we can love one another, but we can't save one another. We need a Savior. We need that redemptive, redeeming love that only God in Christ can provide. We need that. When we have that and experience that, that really frees us up on that romantic and that friendship love. I suggested this last week that wholeness in the life of a single person, wholeness where really there is a sense of real completeness because of Jesus Christ is a very powerful witness to the world. And in the marriage relationship, that oneness that's fashioned out of wholeness. It's not that the marriage relationship makes one whole. It's that out of the wholeness comes a oneness in that marriage relationship. And in the household of faith, when you have that kind of wholeness in the single person and that kind of oneness in the marriage relationship, I don't think the witness of the church gets any more powerful than that. That really is the testimony to the power of redemptive love. So friendship love and romantic love are based on this divine God-given, God-sacrificed, redemptive love. Well, that's kind of the ideal. Uh, we're facing, I think, uh, tremendous, I mean, tr- tremendous difficulties in... Um, in our culture, even this past week with the almost iconic farewell to Hugh Hefner, who you know, ought to be credited with a tremendous amount of moral decline in our culture, an icon for that. Kind of, but he's not at all. He hasn't passed away with that kind of uh, concern whatsoever. Uh, Virginia found an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday uh, by uh, Mark uh, Regneris, who teaches at uh, University of Texas, Austin, and has written a book that's just come out by Oxford University Press entitled Cheap Sex and the Decline of Marriage. And in that article, he has uh, he's concluded that the reason uh, men are marrying so much later is, is not because of the job market, not because of their fear of commitment, but just because they feel that they can have promiscuous lifestyle for another decade without any repercussions and that women are gladly abiding by that change. He writes, my own research points to a more straightforward and primal explanation for the slowed pace toward marriage. For American men, sex has become rather cheap. As compared to the past, many women today expect little in return for sex in terms of time, attention, commitment, or fidelity. Men, in turn, do not feel compelled to supply these goods as they once did. It is the new sexual norm for Americans, men and women alike, of every age. Which raises the question as to how the church can really teach soulcraft, model this type of understanding of the lesser love and the greater love, because we live with a kind of t- cultural tidal wave that opposes this kind of thinking um, 
and our young people go off to university sometimes clueless as to, I think, the relationship of the lesser love and the greater love, the importance of God's redemptive love. Being, and you're not going to find salvation in any of one other than in God is going to realize and fulfill your life. The attitude often of the culture, and this is on your study sheet, is a quote in one of Garrison Keillor's uh, novels, Woebegone Boy, uh, and his main character proposes to his lover. Uh, both have come from other marriages and now are drawn to each other. And this is how he understands his life. My darling Alita, you are the love of my life. And now all I need is a life to go with you. <laughs> the love of my life and all I need now is a life to go with me. What I have, my darling, is a lifestyle. The life of people in commercials. I have a nice house and nice things. And every couple of weeks I have you, the goddess Epaphrodite. But I have no coherent story of my life. I'm part of no struggle, having nothing to, at stake. I'm a fussy man in a blue suit who consumes fine wines. I need passion, blood, magnificence. You are the only magnificence I know. Marry me. I think he's captured uh, the neat difference between having a life. As Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly versus the notion of a lifestyle. I have a life that's like the commercials. <laughs> um, and, you know, the impossibility of that, and yet the normality of that in our culture. What is unusual to think that God's love has been foundational to my salvation and therefore is fundamental to my relating. And therefore I have a certain depth, an image that's made not out of myself, but an image received by the grace of God. That's the unusual. That's the abnormal. That's the unrealistic expectation today. This, I think, expresses just the common, ordinary understanding of how life goes. Well, I've done a lot of talking. Any comments? Scott. Was the, the guy from Texas who wrote the book you were talking about, did he, um, was the article Virginia found about Hugh Hefner and did he connect his stuff up with that or was that a connection that he... I don't... I don't think it had anything to do with Hefner. Okay. Yeah. It just had to do with the analysis of why men are waiting yeah. so long to marry. Um, and, of course, the percentage of people actually ending up in marriages is, is, has becoming, is becoming greatly reduced over time as well. Well, turn the page over. I'm sure that you're all thinking. Yeah, I just count on that. That all, there's lots of ideas in those heads um, and hearts. Uh, and I'd probably have to spend more time, we'd have to spend more time together to really get a good discussion. And a good discussion would be really important. Uh, this comment, this quote from C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, I think is important. 
and I would love it to be in our conscience, uh, it is too late when the crisis comes to begin telling a wife or a husband or mother or friend that your love all along had a secret reservation under God, or so far as higher love permits. They ought to have been warned, not to be sure explicitly, but by the implication of a thousand talks, by the principle revealed in a hundred decisions upon small matters. Indeed, a real disagreement on the issue should make itself felt early enough to prevent a marriage or a friendship from existing at all. Friendship is capital F. He's not meaning that we can't be friends without full disclosure that you're committed to Jesus Christ. But Lewis is remarking on the fact that how can you have the most fundamental oneness relationship with somebody that hardly knows, maybe doesn't know, that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. How, how, did, how can you do that? Uh, isn't that sort of the, the daily part of, of life? Uh, great story that I experienced this week. A uh, fellow in my mentoring group told me of a student from Auburn dating a uh, Christian who goes to Altadena Press. Brad Allison's the pastor there. And they've been going out for several weeks. And, uh, and he invited her to church uh, two Sundays ago. And uh, it was a communion Sunday in this Presbyterian church. And while the communion tray passed down the pew as they uh, administer the sacrament there, she said inexplicably she felt uh, an insatiable hunger as the tray pastor. And the pastor had said, this is for committed believers, this is for believers who are baptized. And so she didn't take, because she's not a believer, she knew that, and uh, passed right by her, but she felt this insatiable hunger. And then when the cup was passed, she felt an unquenchable thirst. Just a remarkable experience, you know, in the pew as the elements are being passed. And uh, Brad has a kind of an inquirer's class, uh, people who are thinking about the faith, and uh, she went to that. And in the process of the conversation that was ensuing in that class, she just sort of blurted out, well, how does somebody follow Jesus? And that led to further conversation and prayer and a receiving of Christ. And uh, the student friend who heads up their college ministry, Blake, uh, said, the change in her is just remarkable. She's a different person, a new person. Um, and he said, you know, none of us can take any credit for this. None of us kind of had the dialogue that would lead to the conversion. It was just the fact that uh, God kind of broke in, used worship, used what was being done by his grace uh, to break in. Uh, let's warn one another. <laughs> let's encourage one another. Uh, let's let the, the faith that we have in Christ be just so part of the dialogue, part of the conversation, part of what makes us tick. Not to put people off. I think Christians can be the best friend a non-Christian has, and I think they can recognize that. Uh, but sort, of course, there's no self-right. There can't be self-righteousness in, in any kind of distancing. 
Uh, the oneness. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That one flesh way of speaking is to say that every part of us is invested, grandly inclusive, in that marital relationship. There is no compartment outside of that. Uh, it doesn't mean that we become enmeshed together. We retain that kind of wholeness, but it does mean that uh, the expectation is for a true union that is complete. And the physical union of a husband and wife in sexual intercourse is the sacrament of an all-encompassing union. God intended a marriage of minds as well as bodies, of emotions as well as, well as finances. I do think we should teach our young people, and even if we have not practiced it, it should be taught, should be understood, that God really honors saving oneself physically for that one that you have grandly vowed to be committed to forever, that in that exclusive permanent union. I do not think we understand the psychological and emotional impact of having given ourselves away sexually with no intention of commitment and that that has had a profound effect, has a profound effect on the emotional, psychological, and spiritual health of people. And I think we need to impress this truth on our loved ones, on our friends, on our, on our children, on our students, uh, of how profound that is. For the first five years in San Diego, I probably did not marry any professing Christian that had not slept together. Took about five years, I think, of building a kind of ethos and uh, teaching within the life of the church. And I remember one Navy pilot, and I had probably four or five sessions with this couple, really neat couple. She was a medical doctor, he was a pilot, kind of a high-flying couple, sincere, winsome, attractive, with it, intellectual, and especially her, committed to Christ. And, uh, and they wouldn't have seen anything wrong with uh, having sex together before marriage. And we kind of had that discussion. And I remember saying, you know, I mean, just out of the blue, it wasn't connected to that for a purpose. Um, I said to you, how do you, think of, how do you think about a person who would wear their wings before they had earned their wings. And he got red. He got mad. Even with the thought that somebody would fake being a pilot for those that had risked their lives learning how to be a pilot. And I said, well, that's what I feel about sexuality, before, having sex before marriage. You're wearing the wings before you've really made the commitment. And he turned red again. Um, <laughs> Pastors can be direct. Uh, that may be the last time you ever see some. No, <laughs> uh, but I think somebody has to. Somebody has to talk straight. I think. Um, 
I just, I raise it here. It almost seems awkward anytime you raise it. But I raise it here that it should pervade the household of faith culture. I think it's really important. The oneness of marriage is a beautiful, powerful experience, but it has some hard edges, some definite limits, and immense commitments. More than we bargain for has to do with sexual purity before marriage, fidelity in marriage, mutual submission throughout marriage. It has to do with the soul's amen to God's revealed will more than it has to do with the inner recesses of the secret self. Mike Mason's book, The Mystery of Marriage, is a really good book. Uh, there's a number out there, um, but this one uh, has been around for a while, and it's good. Mike Mason writes in the box, To put it simply, marriage is a relationship far more engrossing than we want it to be. It always turns out to be more than we bargained for. It is disturbingly intense, disruptively involving, and that's exactly the way it has been the way it was designed to be. It is supposed to be more, almost than we can handle. It was meant to be a lifelong encounter that would be much more rigorous and demanding than anything human beings ever could have chosen, dreamed of, desired or invented on their own. Some of you were with me in my Job study, and you may remember uh, the book I referred to in that study, Hope Heals, uh, by Catherine and Jay Wolf. And just uh, to sum up real quickly, uh, she was uh, afflicted with a, a, a brain an aneurysm in the brain stem that left her paralyzed and uh, feared. Um, dead, very close to death, and uh, came back slowly. And he just describes in this book the what marriage came to mean for him and for them. Uh, and he writes, there was no singular moment when I decided to stay in my marriage. It was more the accumulation of every day, each day's choice to stay of each day's intention to find awe and empathy and love for this woman who had been quite literally reborn. And yet in the physical stain, it became clear that I would also need to commit to stay internally as well. What was my commitment worth if my body was in it, but my heart was not? I was struck by the picture of God allowing people's hearts to harden like the pharaohs in the book of Exodus, or correspondingly to soften. I began to pray specifically, as in Ezekiel 11, for God to take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh, one that was soft and tender toward my wife. If suffering is like going through fire, I wanted to choose what this inescapable process purified in me and what it melted away. I found my faith and my hope solidifying into something more constant than my emotions or circumstances, creating an altogether separate organism, and that was so freeing. And again, I get this book, uh, Hope Heals, I think is, is a wonderful marriage book because it really takes us uh, to what uh, marriage can become in a costly sacrifice where Christ... Uh, where, we, where a husband is like Christ in relationship to the church. 
So what have you gained from the few minutes we have together? Well, name one thing that's come through, (laughs) please. What's one thing that's come through this discussion? Your spouse cannot be your savior, right? That God's redemptive love is foundational to our romantic love, to our relational love. That wholeness in the self because of Christ and oneness in the marriage relationship is fundamental to the witness of the church. And that we do have a responsibility with people growing up in this church to really understand this theology. Uh, My concern, we are a very gospel-centered church. That's wonderful. That gospel implies very powerfully living out that gospel. And that impacts how you look at money. It impacts how you look at sex. It impacts how you look at your life, your legacy, all of these things. And we do need to teach this. It doesn't follow automatically. We don't just naturally incline ourselves to the gospel life. That has to be taught, disciplined, worked, accountability, prayed for. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we need your blessing. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation that is so whole, so complete. I pray for my sisters and brothers in Christ, for their peace in you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.